Hello, and welcome to another episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. This podcast is based on my website and blog. My main goal is to speak about my theater-going experiences in concise summaries without plot spoilers. You should get a sense of what a particular show is about and why I do or do not recommend it. I am New York City-based, but often review productions in other cities. This month, I will also cover a play in Elkhart, Indiana, with the Elkhart Civic Theater. Another goal of my blog and this podcast is to share my love of theater and hopefully inspire you to see a play, musical, or theater company that you may not have known about. In today's episode, I'm going to share with you my theater visits I attended in September of 2018, including the off-Broadway phenomena Be More Chill that is moving to Broadway this winter, and the comedy The Nap. As always, you can visit the website for up-to-date or archived posts at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. And I do spell theater the American way, T-H-E-A-T-E-R, theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. In addition, you can register to receive emails for all new posts as they are added. Now let's get started on today's podcast. We'll begin with the musical Be More Chill. Based on a novel by Ned Vizzini, Be More Chill is about Jeremy, a high school student who was simply not cool. The musical opens strongly with More Than Survive, a song which covers teenage angst with lyrics like, I feel my stomach filling up with dread. The direct audience for this entertaining exercise is the young adults who made the show an internet sensation after its world premiere in 2015 at the Two River Theater in Red Bank, New Jersey. As of this podcast, the sold-out off-Broadway show from August and September will be transferring to Broadway in February 2019. The material is definitely strong enough. Be More Chill is a hybrid of the current Broadway hit Mean Girls and a science fiction young adult adventure. The school bully Rich is played by Gerard Canonico, who looks like Johnny Kalecki's younger brother and is just as funny. Rich introduces Jeremy to Squip, that's S-Q-U-I-P, a superunit quantum intel processor, which can control the brain to help Jeremy learn to act cooler. In other words, instead of being a nerd, he will be more chill. Naturally, things go awry. Joe Iconis, who wrote the music and lyrics, and Joe Trace, the book, directly wrote this show squarely towards the young adult audience. As a result, the storytelling, and in particular, the multitude of high-quality character songs clearly evoke an atmosphere. As in Mean Girls, another nerd gets their shot to hang out with the cool kids. Thanks to the science fiction angle, the predicaments pile on to the nerdy delights. Jeremy's friend and love interest Christine, an excellent Stephanie Sue expresses her inner geekiness in the song I Love Play Rehearsal. A knockout performance by George Salazar's Jeremy's Best Friend includes the show's best song, Michael in the Bathroom, during the, well, as also seen in Mean Girls, costume party. All of this inspired silliness is not necessarily breaking any new ground. What Be More Chill has in abundance, though, is style and commitment. Beowulf Borat has designed a set which cleverly frames technology's pervasiveness over this demographic. 
Stephen Brackett directed the show with energy and heart, seemingly channeling the telephone-singing teens from Bye Bye Birdie into the present iPhone era. None of this would come together if our hero at the center of the story wasn't relatable, sweet, and misguided. As Jeremy, Will Rowland created a fully detailed, realistically believable character and firmly nails his memorable Act 1 closer, loser, geek, whatever. Who was the audience for Be More Chill? Young adults, surely, even though there is a playful raunchiness that may be considered slightly offensive to some. Here's a quote. I'm waiting for my porno to load. Older theatergoers who want to see an outstanding production while embracing the youthful subject matter. Broadway audiences? I hope so, but many of the comments I heard exiting the theater were respectful, but not completely engaged. Things like too long and I'm not the target audience. However, if you know how to be more chill, grab your tickets and give this sold-out phenomena a try. Maybe you'll learn to be cooler as a result. From a musical to a play revival in a small town in Indiana. The play is Ripcord. After a successful home win at Notre Dame against Vanderbilt, I decided to take a drive and check out the Elkhart Civic Theater, a community troupe in Indiana which performs in the historic and quite nice Bristol Opera House. Ripcord, written by David Lindsay Abair, is their first production of this year's season. I saw this playwright's Pulitzer Prize-winning Broadway play Rabbit Hole in 2006. In that piece, a tragic event looms like a dark cloud over a family, but there are also elements of comedy. In Ripcord, the same duality exists, but not quite as heavy nor as deep. Directed by Demaray Dufour Noneman, this slightly dark situation comedy might be appropriately titled Golden Girls with a Vengeance. Two ladies share a room in the Bristol Place Senior Living Facility. Abby Binder, played by an assured Jenny Daddario, is frankly a pain in the ass and cannot seem to get along with others. Enter Marilyn Dunn, the chatty one with a seemingly sweet, simple demeanor. The two concoct a bet. Can Abby be scared? Can Marilyn get mad? Down the rabbit hole they go as the pranks intensify. Marilyn may have a sweet nature, but there is a strong fortress of self-protection lurking underneath the somewhat batty exterior. She is well played by Stacy Nichol, who ensures that we have empathy for her, as well as mild repulsion. All of this is light as air dark comedy. There is meanness for sure, but it skims along quickly and is forgotten as we move on to the next series of hijinks. The Elkhart Civic Theater has given Ripcord a solid production. The pacing is just right for the material, and the set design effectively accomplishes a lot of scene changes with its modest budget. The skydiving scene was cleverly executed. In multiple roles, Keith Sarber was memorable, notably as Benjamin, the character who helps ground the plot toward its Golden Girls finale. All in all, an entertaining production of this play by everyone backstage and on stage. Special kudos to the company for having bios in the program for the crew. John Shoup is the theater's artistic and technical director. In his letter from this season's brochure, he eloquently encapsulates this company's DNA. Quote, You see, this is theater, for and by the community. 
Over the years, thousands of people have had a hand in creating characters and whole worlds that once existed only in a playwright's imagination. Here, in this place, on our stage. This is where we become family, whether it's for a few weeks or a few generations. This is where we do what we love and share what we love in the hope that you will love it too. Is there a better way to express the passion and purpose of localized community theater? I look forward to seeing another production at the Elkhart Civic Center one day, because I love it too. Let's travel back to New York City and an off-off Broadway production of Dickie in the House. The People's Improv Theater is dedicated to the instruction, performance, and development of original comedy. Dickie in the House is described as the possibly true, entirely fabricated, probably wrong story of Watergate, as told by two girls who really don't know what happened, but gave it the old college try. The piece is clearly a distant cousin to the often riotous Drunk History television series. Olivia Atwood and Maggie Seymour wrote, performed, and directed this assortment of loosely written sketches and musical numbers. I did laugh at some of the antics, particularly those of Miss Atwood, who reminded me of a young, underdeveloped, mildly feral Carol Burnett. Her face has the same ability to morph. Mashing up the President Richard Nixon scandal is a fairly ripe opportunity to mine some serious laughs in today's political, autocratic environment. Leaders who believe themselves above the law. In Dickie in the House, Mrs. Nixon even wants him dead. The general problem with this material, though, is it doesn't come close enough to skewering its source material and wanders all over the place. Long stretches are indeed silly, but not funny enough to sustain the audience's visibly waning interest. When President Nixon resigned, he left the White House in disgrace. When this play ended, I left the pit a bit befuddled. The intended target was huge, but the zingers sailed past without a scratch. Next up, the off-Broadway revival of A Lovely Sunday for Crev Corps. One of Tennessee Williams' final plays, A Lovely Sunday for Crev Corps, was first produced in 1979, four years before he died. This piece is rarely revived. The relatively new company, La Femme Theatre, has a mission to celebrate and explore the universal female experience. As an added bonus, one of my favorite performers, the usually hilarious and talented Christine Nielsen, co-stars. Krebcor is a park located in St. Louis. The setting is a small working-class apartment in 1937. Bodie, who is played by Ms. Nielsen, shares her apartment with Dorothea, a high school civics teacher with more than a crush on the school principal. The play opens with her waiting for a promised phone call from him. She is classically written in the Blanche Dubois mold, fading beauty and delusional dreamer. Every Sunday, Bodie packs a lunch to go to Crevcore with a not-so-subtle attempt to fix Dorothea up with her slovenly brother. Despair, desperation, and loneliness are key themes in this work. Miss Gluck is the deeply grieving upstairs neighbor who has just lost her mother and is living alone. The kind-hearted Bodie is consoling her with coffee and crullers every day. Dorothea cannot deal with Miss Gluck's depressed countenance, hysterical crying, and aggressive ranting in her native German, 
Dorothea's co-worker Helena makes a surprise visit, and her haughtiness sparks conflict with Bodhi's calculated kindness and sets the tone for an exercise in verbally eviscerating combat. A Lovely Sunday for Krebcore is a tragic comedy with four meaty roles for actresses to play. The meanness of women, especially to each other, is certainly on display here, but with added layers of fear, dreams, self-protection, and gut instincts. Everyone is damaged. Some have more highly developed coping skills. The performances are mixed. Miss Nielsen's tragic moments are heart-wrenching in their emotional availability. Her comedic line readings are directly from the Best of Christine Nielsen playbook. Fans know what that means. Here it occasionally registers a bit too big, but admittedly this play has slow moments to fill. Jean Lichty, as the Blanche Dubois-like Dorothea, and Polly McKee, as the grieving Miss Gluck, both nicely inhabit their very different roles despite the nuttiness of the plot lines. Annette O'Toole's characterization of the highfalutin Helena seemed quite starchy for my tastes, too one-dimensionally prim for all the harshness written into the role. The play is unabashedly kooky, so these actresses have to traverse massive mood swings. Crevcore is a long one-act piece, and the tempo dragged a number of times. Austin Pendleton directed these ladies to play the scenes fairly bluntly. Oddly, the set designer... Harry Finer, and the director were out of sync. Sometimes there would be eavesdropping near the imaginary door between rooms. Other times, these women directly confronted each other face-to-face over furniture where there had recently been an imaginary wall. There are good reasons to see a lovely Sunday in Crevcore, particularly if you enjoy Tennessee Williams. Last spring, Classic Stage Company, with the Transport Group, mounted an outstanding version of Summer and Smoke. His plays are rich with imperfect souls. If you come to see this production, sit very close to the front. Some lines were hard to hear in row A. I understood why people in the back were complaining on the way out. For emotionally scarring melodrama to work, it has to be audible. To the off-off-Broadway troupe Metropolitan Playhouse, and its production of You and I. A young man dreams of a career as a painter, but falls in love. Instead of pursuing his passion, he marries and becomes a businessman for a company that makes soap. In his 40s, and looking back, he realizes as an individual he was an I. As a married man, however, it's always you and I. What makes for a happy life? A fulfilling one. What are the compromises and benefits associated with the signing on to you and I? The play's plot also revolves around their son, who dreams of a career as an architect. Like his father, he has fallen in love at a young age. Go to Europe and study or get married? The setup occurs early in this diverting, uncomplicated story. Philip Barry wrote this play while he was engaged and trying to establish himself as a playwright before settling down. The axiom, write what you know, certainly applies here. A critical and commercial success, You and I was Mr. Barry's first play to produced on Broadway in 1923. His later and more famous works include Holiday and The Philadelphia Story, written specifically for Katharine Hepburn, which were turned into Hollywood films. 
You and I was also adapted into a now-lost 1931 movie called The Bargain. Metropolitan Playhouse explores America's theatrical heritage to illustrate contemporary American culture. Do you follow a path to your passions, which may be less lucrative than getting a safer job in business? That is certainly a question being addressed by young people today. You and I explores that theme with the added fun of listening to language, mannerisms, and societal hierarchies now a century old. In a small, off-off-Broadway house, this company has mounted a fine, well-directed version of this play. The director was Michael Hardert. The cast is quite accomplished in portraying roles from this very old play without any smell of mothballs. Finely etched characterizations were created by Elizabeth Preston as the mother and Aidan Eastwood as her son. In particular, her chemistry with her husband and excellent Timothy C. Goodwin was believable and had a cool, nicely understated Nick and Nora vibe. Caitlin Barrett's set design is simple and highly effective in establishing place. The scene changes are performed by the actors in this very intimate space. The overall result is an evening spent eavesdropping in a family's home as they ponder the mini-dramas of the day. I enjoy this production of You and I immensely. Glad to see this rarely revived play on stage and highly recommend a trip to the Metropolitan Playhouse in the East Village. And while you're there, check out my favorite Cuban restaurant in New York City, Cafe Cortadito, just two blocks away. My final play review of this podcast is the Broadway mounting of The Nap. In my senior year at college, a close friend had fallen in love with a British man who visited America for the first time. While we went to class, he watched American game shows on the telly and later remarked about three, three cars being given away on a single episode of The Price is Right. Apparently in England, that wasn't exactly how game shows worked. After they married, I flew across the pond and experienced the stark contrast. A fairly difficult trivia show was on television, and the winning prize was announced. Quote, a one-way ticket to France, find your own way back. Unquote. I howled. I laughed much harder recalling that moment than I did any time during the nap. Back in the 1980s, there were only a handful of channels to watch on TV. A snooker tournament dominated the airwaves when I visited the now-married couple. Hours and hours of snooker. The commentary was like watching golf without the pretty views. So I thought I would get a tremendous kick out of the nap, which concerns itself with the snooker championship and assortment of colorful characters. In addition, Richard Bean previously wrote the hilarious One Man, Two Governors, which justifiably made James Corden a star here. Although it receives some strong reviews in London, The Nap is a fairly dull affair, never as witty or funny as it thinks it is. Dylan Spokes, a fine Ben Schnetzer, enters the World Schnooker Championship and the police are trying to root out a gambling syndicate threatening to ruin the sport. His dad offers him a shrimp sandwich, despite the fact that he is vegetarian and doesn't eat anything with brains. His mom is the white trash type with slimy boyfriend. The female police officer is sexy. His agent is transgendered and frequently spouts malapropisms that are intermittently clever. Example, she has a peanut analogy. 
Will you chuckle a few times? Yes, but not nearly enough. The cast was uniformly good in their roles. The set design is excellent with elaborate scene changes from Snooker Hole to Dylan's bedroom to the World Championship table. The actual tournament playing rounds are by far the most entertaining, with droll television commentary adding to the snooker tension. As directed by Daniel Sullivan, the nap never sinks the ball into a pocket called comedy. I believe the fault, however, lies largely in a play with far too many scratches to be recommended. Lastly, another entry into the retrospective series where I review shows that I have seen in my past. This entry, a chorus line. Long before Hamilton transferred from the public theater to a triumphant Broadway run, there was a chorus line. Also developed at the public theater, Michael Bennett was given space for a year to work on his celebration of Broadway dancers. This musical went on to break the record as the longest running show in Broadway history. I saw a chorus line three times during that original run. For this entry in my retrospective series, I viewed two tapings preserved in the New York Public Library's Theater on Film and Tape Collection. The first was the off-Broadway public theater taping on July 12, 1975, before it transferred uptown, and the then record-breaking 3,389th Broadway performance on September 29, 1983. Writing this blog has been illuminating as a chronicle of my personal experiences, an opportunity to communicate with theater companies, and as a chance to voice an opinion which hopefully adds to the theatrical discourse. Before the internet, certainly in the time of a chorus line, the print and television critics had much more influence than perhaps they do today. I decided to first examine what was said about this classic, possibly perfect musical. On May 22, 1975, in the New York Times, Clive Barnes started his review of the off-Broadway production by stating, The conservative word for a chorus line might be tremendous, or perhaps terrific. All in all, an excellent review, except for the score, in which he said, Mr. Hamlish is not such a good composer as he was in the movie The Sting when he was being helped out by Scott Joplin, but he can pass. By the time the show opened on Broadway in October, Mr. Barnes had a change of heart. The music by Marvin Hamlish, which I have now gotten to know from the recording, is far more vital to the proceedings than I first thought, and far better. It could easily become a classic. After having viewed these two tapings, the score is definitely a classic. A band of dancers at an audition to see who gets hired. The critics at the time were mixed on the quasi-group therapy of James Kirkwood and Nicholas Dante's book, I found the show storyline to be a rich mining of the dancer's soul. What drives their passion to excel? Why commit to this hard life of rejection? Sheila's nearing the end of her career and says, I'm going to be 30 real soon and I'm real glad, dripping with sarcasm. What motivated her? In the exceptional At the Ballet, she tells us, I wanted to be a prima ballerina. In the same song, Bebe confronts her appearance. Different is nice, but it sure isn't pretty. Maggie deals with her parents' divorce. Raise your arm, and someone's always there. There's an abundance of humor in this show. Locked in the bathroom with Peyton Place. And 
to commit suicide in Buffalo is redundant. But the serious moments and vocalized introspections from these dancers takes an audition and turns the proceedings into a celebration of tenacity and talent. In the mid-1970s, Broadway was starting to slump. The character Paul has a heart-wrenching monologue about how he transformed from a homosexual kid dismissed from a Catholic school to eventually becoming a legit dancer. He pointedly notes, I don't want to hear how Broadway's dying because I just got here. A chorus line was a major shot in the arm prior to the impending AIDS crisis and its devastating impact on the theater over the next two decades. A chorus line was Hamilton big, West Side Story big, Oklahoma big. When the show celebrated its 3,389th performance, many companies were invited to perform on stage at the Schubert. The show opened with the original cast, and the following companies appeared throughout the evening. The International, National, Bus and Truck, Las Vegas, Chicago, and members of various foreign companies. Near the end of the show, Zach asked the dancers, What do you do when you can't dance anymore? Here, the responses were ingeniously presented in different languages, further binding the dancing community together as a kindred soul of people regardless of national origin. Arguably, the single greatest moment of his taping, however, was Diana's superlative song, Nothing. Every day for a week, we would try to hear the wind rush. If you can hear that sentence without singing it, then you are overdue to see this musical. This song was performed by the actress from the Japanese company entirely in her native language. Since everyone in the audience presumably knew all of the words, the effect was beyond entertaining. It was both thrillingly hilarious and a testament to the universality of this singular sensation. Michael Bennett was the genius who conceived, directed, and choreographed a chorus line. The sheer fluidity of the show is remarkable, never so much as when the dancers step up to the line in their famous poses. The white line painted on the stage is the touchstone for these Broadway gypsies. They repeatedly return to the line before spinning out with extraordinary dancing coupled with the heart, sweat, and tears of passionate artists living their dream. In the finale, the lyrics for one include the awesome nervy lyric, Loaded with charisma is my jauntily sauntling ambling shambler. In the mining industry, a shamble is one of a succession of niches above one another that ore travels from platform to platform, thereby raising it to a higher level. In the land of musical theater, a chorus line rises to such starry heights as to be a shamble extraordinaire. Thank you for listening to this episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. Next month, we'll visit St. Anne's Warehouse in Brooklyn and the revival of Oklahoma, the Axis Company's reprise of a successful run of High Noon from earlier this year. And then I'm planning to take a trip to Poland and to Prague, and I'm going to see at least three productions and review them and blog about them next month. And my next entry into the retrospective series will be on the 20th century. If you have any comments or suggestions for a theater piece to be reviewed, you can send an email to theaterreviewsfrommyseat at comcast.net. You can also sign up for email subscriptions to current reviews at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. Thank you for listening and have a great day.